This is a Federal News Network podcast. Stop me if you've heard this, but the government has a continuing need for new talent. In that regard, it's like every other industry. For some new ideas on how the federal government can stay in the competition, we turn to the executive director of Deloitte's Center for Government Insights, Bill Eggers. Bill, good to have you back. It's great to be back with you, Tom. Now, this newest study kind of looks at both how the world of work itself has changed and therefore it's changed the rules of the game with respect to recruiting and retaining people. That's the basic thesis here? Absolutely. The workplace of today is very different even than the workplace of three years ago, as we read about on a daily basis in the news. All right. So first of all, how did you go about kind of coming up with your recommendations for the government in the first place? Well, I think it's first just to understand what the main issue is. Um, In the war for talent, really, government is finding itself outgunned right now. When you talk to public managers looking to hire professional and technical talent, we just always hear the same story. You can't hire them. You can't keep them. And this is at a time when the public sector is facing a whole slew of complex challenges from climate change to cybercrime that require these very highly skilled workers. And while it's always been difficult for government to sometimes attract that top talent, especially young tech savvy professionals today, it often feels close to impossible in this sort of job market that we're in, which I haven't seen anything like this in decades and decades. You know, most people don't realize it, but from January 2020 to January 22, government lost more than 600,000 workers, more than manufacturing, wholesale trade, and construction combined. And when you look at the federal workforce, only 8% is under the age of 30, compared to close to 25% in the private sector. And at the same time, we are starting to see a lot of retirement eligible employees are accelerating retirement plans, the highest percentage at the state and local level uh, since the survey actually began in 2009. So government has a lot of headwinds facing right now as it's trying to attract talent in this area where they dramatically need to increase the workforce component of those in the Gen Z and millennials. And heading your list of ways for the government to attract and retain talent is flexibility in where, when, how people work. And that seems to be the government's weakest spot because it's the most rigid in many ways work environment of all. When you look at job postings, when you look at all the survey data, it's really clear that for Gen Z, millennials, flexibility across all dimensions is really table stakes. It's the most important thing. They're looking for jobs that work for them, which it means better compensation, better work-life balance, an environment where they feel a sense of belonging. And if you have jobs that say that you're going to have to come into the office five days a week and there's no flexibility there, the amount of job applications you're going to get is dramatically, dramatically lower than other sort of positions that offer more flexibility. And a couple other major aspects of this generation of workers is that they're increasingly prioritizing their physical and mental health well-being and seeking employers who are going to do the same. 73% are seeking mental health coverage. 72% say health and wellness stipends are critical. And they also just want a job that makes a difference. So this notion of well-being, flexibility, pay, and of course, there's always purpose and impact, which is always attractive to people, to government. But there's these other factors now that in all the survey evidence show that are just as important and government's going to have to compete 
in those areas. It looks like government agency by agency is beginning to show that flexibility, at least with respect to where and when people work, in terms of the hours they choose to work or the location, almost by default, because they have no other choice, even with the employees they do have. And this is in the absence of any congressional mandate here or any even White House kind of overarching policy, except it seems to be do what works best for you. Yeah, and I think that is critical. And I will say that the questions we get the most often around this area are how do you make hybrid work actually work? It's more difficult to do a hybrid environment than an all remote or an all in person, as we found when we try to do hybrid meetings and so on. And you have to focus on all those elements, a culture of respect and inclusion, belonging, and also how do you do mentorship in this sort of environment? How do you replace those water cooler conversations? How are you intentional about where work actually happens when you actually do need to bring people together? And I also think there's a big piece of this just around opportunities. We're seeing a very entrepreneurial generation that they want to seek opportunities to do entrepreneurial work at work. And One of the ways that governments can do this is encouraging workers to pursue diverse projects. So investing in resources like internal talent marketplaces. And these are forums where employees can look for rotations, projects, new roles within the organization to really provide this mechanism for engaging in projects that they're passionate about. They're gaining experiences in new roles. We see this at NASA with their talent marketplace. The armed services have now talent marketplaces as the Department of Energy and the Canadian government has something called the free agent model. And those are all examples of offering people diverse kind of experiences while working in government, which is actually one of the biggest benefits that governments can really sell to employees as an attractive place to work. We're speaking with Bill Eggers. He's executive director of Deloitte's Center for Government Insights. And many of those measures can be done at the discretion of federal managers and executives if only they'll choose to do that. But there's one on the list here, individualized rewards and non-traditional benefits. And that gets into the area of, you know, Title V and so forth. And you just can't hand out bonus checks willy-nilly, maybe at the state and local level. But at the federal level, is there any pathway toward that kind of individualization? Absolutely. The key thing is that there are lots of different ways of going about this. It's not just a one size fits all sort of thing. You know, by allowing employees to choose their rewards, you can boost satisfaction. So one employee, for example, might value a childcare stipend or voucher points to use for grocery delivery, while another might prefer retail card or others might be really interested in making sure that they have very good mental health coverage and encouraging conversations on the topic. So you can foster trust in that way. But there are you know, a lot of examples where government's beginning to do this. The, the issue governments have is that the private sector is moving really, really rapidly towards offering kind of unprecedented benefits in a lot of these areas and certainly around well-being and so forth. And so that's an area I think that it's important for government as an employer who's also trying to model good behavior for the private sector to be more at the cutting edge and less a laggard in this area going forward. And, you know, the thing we haven't talked about so far is just the whole pay issue, which is it's very apparent that pay matters and compensation right now by Gen Z is the most important factor behind their employment choices, decisions to switch jobs. And so we're going to need more of what we've seen at the Department of Homeland Security with their cyber talent management system 
which is more flexible ways of having competitive pay and tying pay increases to mission impact instead of just tenure or recognition payments. You know, and unlike the general schedule, the DHS cyber system doesn't feature automatic pay increases. It offers a lot more of this sort of flexibility. And for especially these highly technical sort of areas, that's going to be really, really critical for government to be able to recruit people out of grad school or from other sort of positions, which are really, really crucial right now for government to meet its mission impact. That's right. There are a lot of flexibilities in the system now in terms of hiring. I think the number varies, 125 job flexibilities. And you see these reports from time to time that agency managers only use a handful of them. But there's probably tools that are just simply sitting in a bucket. If someone wanted to exercise them, they could pull them out and loosen them up and probably try it. No, absolutely. I think and that's what you will hear often from OPM and OMB is that agencies have a lot more flexibility in this area than they're actually looking. You know, and on the good side of things, uh, the OPM's uh, recent strategic plan, you know, it pledged to make the federal government a model employer and transform OPM into a leader in human capital management. And that plan included a bunch of hiring objectives in terms of increases in military spouses, uh, 10% increase in early career employees, And over the long term, OPM is really focused on a government-wide policy and coordination with the Chicos um, throughout the federal government so that they can make a lot of this happen. But I think it is going to require managers who are hiring people in the human capital shops really understanding all of those flexibilities and understanding that it's absolutely going to be critical to use all the flexibilities they have and then additional flexibilities they might need to ask for them at the state and local level. There's actually fewer flexibilities oftentimes than you see at the federal level. And so that might actually require legislation at the state level or city council level to give more of this sort of flexibility, which has become table stakes in today's workplace. Bill Eggers is executive director of Deloitte Center for Government Insights. As always, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a full list of measures the government can take at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. 
And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might've had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. 
And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, I'm not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.